Hi, this is Bill Feltham coming to you with the Wall Street Journal. And today our first article comes from the Washington Examiner, dated Thursday, June 11, 2020. And the title is, All He Cares About Is Money. Hong Kong activists rip LeBron James over hypocritical stance on China. A Hong Kong activist who testified before the U.S. Congress on behalf of Democratic protesters accused NBA superstar LeBron James of blatant hypocrisy. Early Thursday morning, Joshua Wong said James, who backed the George Floyd protests but failed to support freedom protests in Hong Kong over the past year, only talks loud in the U.S. He highlighted the basketball player's criticism of Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey, whom he called misinformed after the manager threw his support behind the Hong Kong demonstrations in October 2019. Quote, defending democracy is vital, but at King James only talks loud in the U.S., Wong tweeted. On China, not only is he silent, he actively shuts others up. He called at D. Moray misinformed and not really educated for supporting hashtag Hong Kong. All he cares about is money, not human rights. Hypocritical. Wong, the secretary general of a youth active, activist group promoting democracy in Hong Kong, was responding to a Los Angeles Times article promoting James's organization more than a vote which aims to curb violent suppression in the upcoming election. Though James has willingly waded into political discord, his silence on the authoritarian regime of the Chinese Communist Party has drawn criticism from some who view his October comment on the situation as steaming from the economic interests of the NBA in China. Officials in Beijing canceled a number of high-profile television televised broadcasts of the NBA preseason games taking place in China after the exchange. I don't want to get into words or sentence feud with Daryl Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on the situation at hand, James told reporters in October. And so many And continuing on our next article also from the Washington Examiner dated Thursday, June 11th, Four Inconvenient Facts for Anti-Policing Rioters by Jason C. Johnson. Out of the opinion section, the tragic death of George Floyd has reignited the debate over police-involved deaths. Justifiably, Floyd's death, which was recorded, has brought swift and certain rebuke to the Minneapolis police officers involved in his arrest. One may be tempted to compare Floyd's death with other cases that have garnered significant public attention, but such comparisons only serve to mislead and divide. In order for the debate surrounding police practices to be constructive and not destructive, we all have the responsibility to seek and rely on facts rather than emotion and racially divisive rhetoric. Virtually everyone has seen the viral video of what happened during the Floyd's arrest. Even for seasoned law enforcement veterans, especially for seasoned law enforcement veterans, it's difficult to watch. It was inexcusable. It was wrong. It was not police work. It does an incredible disservice to the honorable men and women who proudly wear a badge to call this policing. It undermines the great work done are being done across law enforcement to sow seeds of trust within communities. The officers involved in the Floyd arrest have been fired and will soon face further accountability of that we of that we can be sure. Is Floyd yet another name to add to the litany frequently cited by anti-police activists as being wrongfully and unjustifiably killed by police? Or Could it be that the circumstances of this most recent case are exceedingly rare and genuinely unique? I would strongly argue it's the latter. 
It is remarkable, maybe unprecedented, how police officers have engaged with peaceful protesters, in many cases making statements or gestures of solidarity with protesters. Cases involving the death of a citizen, particularly an African-American citizen, during a confrontation with police have gained significantly more public and media attention since 2014. That year was a very difficult year for law enforcement. It marked a transition in public conversation around race and policing. Politicians, professional athletes, and Hollywood celebrities took up the cause with gusto. There were protests, riots, and hundreds of pieces of local, state, and federal legislation, all promising to address what was being touted as a dire and growing threat. An entire industry of race baiters and profiteers have formed and coalesced around the frequent assertion or fraudulent assertion that police are out of control, trigger-happy racists. They have excused and even promoted rioting and other forms of anarchy, the economic destruction which will hit minorities hardest. We have seen destructive riots here in Washington and in cities across the country. The losses of life and property, along with the economic danger that has and will result from these despicable acts are not justified in any way. It's the community that will bear the heavy burden of rebuilding in the wake of these senseless destructions. The money and human effort needed to do that will distract directly from any effort to improve the performance of law enforcement in those cities. Still, rather than moderate the, the directed anger and focus the effort on solutions rather than destruction. The loudest voices on the ground are using Floyd's tragic death as a way to polarize races and perpetuate the false narrative that police are inherently brutal and bigoted. There has been a huge and glaring pieces missing from the conversation. Facts. Fact one. Only 2% of police-citizen interactions result in any use of force or threat of force. This figure includes even very minor uses, force, such as grabbing, pushing, and handcuffing. The overwhelming majority of these types of force results in no injury. Using this very broad definition of force is almost every arrest would result in a reportable use of force. Fact two, fatal shootings by police officers are extraordinarily rare. About 0.0004% of police contacts and are declining. Law enforcement agencies are as focused as they ever been on finding alternatives to situations that would previously have resulted in death, deadly force. Police are adopting training that focuses on de-escalating volatile situations and recognizing and responding to mental illness in new and innovative ways. Officers are increasingly equipped with less lethal alternatives such as tasers. Employing new training and technology have, in some cases, prevented the need for deadly force. Fact three, though better data collection is necessary, Multiple studies suggest that race is not a factor in deadly force decisions by police officers. What's more, only eight out of one hundred uh, excuse me, only eight out of one thousand fatal police shooting incidents in twenty nineteen involved individuals reported as unarmed black people. The term unarmed does not imply that there was insufficient legal basis for police to use deadly force only that media reports indicated the person was unarmed. Since January 1, 2019, the FBI has been collecting nationwide data on police use of force. This is the first time there have been an effort to collect uniform national data. Having uniform data collection is key to reliable demonstration what those in law enforcement already know. 
Fact four, the Department of Justice, while President Barack Obama was still in office, determined that the hands up, don't shoot rallying cry popularized, popularized after the shooting death of Michael Brown was a manufactured narrative. The GOJ reported further determined that Brown attempted to disarm the police officer and that the officer acted in reasonable self-defense. It is undeniable, true, that Floyd did not deserve to die. His death, right there on video for all to see, is indeed a horrifying example of unacceptable brutality by law enforcement. The inhumanity and disgrace of it all are something law enforcement officers and advocates across the country have been shouting from the proverbial mountaintops since it happened. It's something about which everyone, regardless of race or profession, can agree. But to some, that the matter of Floyd's tragic death is just another example of how police treat black people is as disrespectful of the facts as it is of Floyd's legacy. His case stands in a class of its own. And that's uh, per Jason Johnson is president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. He serves as deputy commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department between 2016 and 2018. So he kind of understands this. All right, and moving into the Wall Street Journal, the first article out of there is Life and Death in Chicago. What happened on a single day in May with too few cops around. And this is from the editorial board. Do American cities need police? Some progressives want to replace police with social workers. But we doubt that includes the people in Chicago who witnessed or were victimized by a crime rampage on a recent single day in Murder City, USA. 18 people in Chicago were murdered on May 31st, marking the city's most violent day in at least 60 years. Over the span of that spring weekend, 85 people were shot, 24 fatally. As rioters ransacked businesses across the city, gangs exploited the chaos and the overstretched police force to steal and kill. We've never seen anything like it at all, Max Kapustin, the senior research director at the University of Chicago's crime lab, told the Chicago Sun-Times. When the police department has to turn its attention elsewhere and there's suddenly this vacuum that opens up, you also unfortunately see a picture like you saw with last weekend where you see an absurd amount of carnage, people getting injured and killed. The victims included John Tiggs, a 32-year-old father of three who had gone to the Metro PCS to pay his bill around noon. Shots broke out in the store as looters robbed stores across Chicago's south side. Mr. Tiggs was struck dead by a bullet to the abdomen. Angela Bronson, a 36, oh, Angelo, excuse me, Bronson, a 36-year-old father of two young children, had been visiting family in Chicago from Washington, D.C. when killed in a drive-by shooting. Just about the last person I could have thought this would have happened to was Angelo, said his longtime friend, Ali Evans. Most victims were young black males, and so are most of the suspects. But several of the slain were young black women, Danielle Jones, a 30-year-old black woman, was standing on her front porch when shots in the chest by a passerby. Kenshanya uh, Bolden, an 18-year-old student at Western Illinois University who was studying to become a correctional officer, was reportedly shot during an argument. She had written a paper last year about gun violence in her neighborhood. Mayor Lori Lightfoot said Chicago's 911 emergency call center received 65,000 calls on May 31st. About 
50,000 more than during a typical day. Police were called in to work overtime, but were stretched thin amid the widespread and indiscriminate attacks on businesses in low-income minority neighborhoods. Progressives protect when black men are unjustly killed by white police officers, but the sounds of silence prevail when blacks are killed by criminals. Before the recent riots, Chicago this year had recorded 200 murders and 826 shootings, 22% and 14% more respectfully than last year. Certainly bad cops need to be punished for misconduct. But the lessons of Chicago and so many other cities is that police are essential to protect minority communities from violence that thrive in an atmosphere of disorder. So there you go. The problem in Chicago is Chicago. And if you've ever been to Chicago, you know that that's not a lie. Our next article is out of the opinion section also, and this is dated June 10th, 2020. Tim Scott leads on police reform. The senator who once said, it's too easy to be angry, is focused on constructive action. Practical politics can sometimes be marred and high are married to high purpose. That's the case when Senator Tim Scott, Republican, South Carolina, the leader of the GOP effort on police reform following the death of George Floyd. This work is essential because the video of Floyd on the Minneapolis street with a police officer's knee on his neck both shocked the nation's conscience and revealed systematic injustices. Americans want th- thoughtful reform of law enforcement and the GOP must help fashion these improvements or pay a heavy electoral price. Republicans are fortunate to have Mr. Scott leading their reform effort. The only African-American GOP senator, he knows of the slight humiliation and dangers of simply being black. He is regularly stopped and profiled and he receives racist death threats. He was once asked for ID by the Capitol Police, even though he was wearing his members-only Senate pen. Moreover, Mr. Scott is a man focused on constructive actions. It's too easy to be angry, he once observed, and too natural, and also House Democrats have already drafted their police reform package and will vote on it in two weeks. But Democrats didn't consult House Republicans, the Senate, or the White House before introducing their bill. It's unclear if Nancy Pelosi laid this out as a marker for bipartisan negotiations or plans to jam it through as a Democratic election talking point. Mr. Scott hopes to fashion broad legislation that draws bipartisan support. The South Carolina senator is a study in contrast. Physically imposing yet soft-spoken, a committed party man with enduring friendships across party lines, and a legislative workhorse who doesn't seek the limelight but is about to be at the center of a media hurricane. He isn't a newcomer to the issue either. Among several police reform efforts, the center has long championed the use of body cameras by every officer in every police department. He believes it will substantially reduce unnecessary use of force and complaints against police. Following the fatal 2015 shooting of Walter Scott, a black man, by a North Charleston, South Carolina officer during a traffic stop for a broken brake light, Senator Scott introduced legislation requiring states that get federal law enforcement grants to report details of all officer-related shootings. The bill foundered and only 40% of U.S. jurisdiction now reports this information. A comprehensive database could help improve law enforcement training and practices. The working group of GOP senators is also discussing ways to ensure police employment records are available to other departments so it's possible to know any potential hires' records. 
the legislators are considering making lynching a federal hate crime, providing funds to help departments hire more diverse officer candidates, and reducing law enforcement grants for states that don't penalize failures to use body cameras. Republicans also may curb no-knock warrants by requiring that departments submit detailed data on their use. These warrants allow law enforcement to enter homes without announcing their presence, as in the incident that led to the death of Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old Louisiana, uh, Louisville, Kentucky EMT shot eight times by police. Senate Republicans may try again to create a National Criminal Justice Group similar to the 9-11 Commission, made up of presidential and congressional appointees. It would review the criminal justice system, its costs, practices, and policies, and recommend changes for all levels of government. A bill to that effect, co-sponsored by Senator John Cornyn, Republican Texas, and Gary Peters, Democrat Michigan, unanimously passed the Senate last fall, but died in Mrs. Pelosi's house. Senate Republicans believe in federalism. They face a challenge in this debate. Most U.S. law enforcement is supervised by city and county elected officials and governed by state laws. But even here, GOP lawmakers can rally constituents to press local and state officials, for example, to outlaw chokeholds and improve training and hiring practices. Mr. Scott isn't the first black South Carolina Republican to draw national attention. During the Civil War, Robert Small stole a Confederate ship from Charleston Harbor and sailed his family and fellow slaves to freedom. After the war, he became a Palamento State Republican representing talking on the Klan and sponsoring anti-lynching legislation. When told his expenses as a delegate to the 1895 State Constitutional Convention wouldn't be reimbursed unless he signed a document establishing segregated rules, Mr. Small declared he'd rather walk more than 100 miles home to Buford than endorsing ending black voting rights. Mr. Scott can also play the role of his country's and party's conscience in the days ahead. It's important that he and his colleagues, Republicans and Democrats, succeed. If they could do it by working together, that would be a welcome gift to the nation. So there you go. And uh, Tim Scott, Representative Tim Scott, has done a lot of good in Washington since he's been there. Our next article is from June 10th uh, from the Wall Street Journal. How Academia Failed to Improve Police Practices. Replicating good policing is less interesting to social scientists than promoting political causes in papers. By Robert Maranto. Sorry for the dead air there. I had to get a drink. And here we go. There is plenty of blame to go around for the latest civil unrest, from police unions to political leaders, but don't let academia off the hook. My fellow professors had years to figure out how to improve policing so that it better protects the lives and dignity of African Americans. Few did so. Instead, professors had been preoccupied with obscure research topics and political causes. This became obvious to me at an academic academic conference in 2018. I was presented a paper titled, We Can Do Better, Police Professionalism and Black Lives Matter. My co-author and I had ranked America's 23 largest cities by police success in keeping homicides low without killing civilians, which makes police work more difficult. The study controlled for poverty. Identifying successful police departments could encourage better police practices, thus saving blacks and others' lives. In our performance metrics, New York City came out on top and El Paso, Texas, second. 
I explained my work to another political scientist who couldn't understand why anyone would study such a thing. Instead, she researched how Black Lives Matter could increase progressive voting turnout. Alas, her mindset is far more common than mine. By a quick search on Google Scholar, the five most cited research articles and books chapters with Black Lives Matter in the title include a Her Story of the Hashtag Black Lives Matter Movement, an article on the evolving role of social media, another on mass struggle, a commentary on racism and public health, and a piece on environmental justice. Other widely cited works are about news coverage of the movement, youth activism, and the migrant crisis in Europe. Judging by their titles, none of the top 20 articles or chapters on Black Lives Matter appear to address directly how to reduce police killings of black civilians. Our manuscripts ranking police departments was rejected by two scholarly, scholarly journals. It is now in the final stages of revision at a third. Similarly, social scientists didn't give much attention to Franklin Zimring's 2017 book, When Police Kill, a serious empirical analysis of the topic suggesting ways to reduce civilian deaths. This misallocation of research puts political activism over empirical problem solving. Activists and academics signal that they care about the disadvantage, but often the real goal is appealing to peers and funders. John Steinbeck exposed similar behavior in his 1936 novel, In Dubious Battle, in which a communist organizer, inspired by activist Pat Chambers, claimed to want higher pay for workers while exploiting them as material for the revolution. What's new is that such activists dominate academic research. How much social science tackles the problem of police killings of civilians. First, it is important to avoid sensational images and focus on the facts. One is that just as a few African Americans are criminal, very few cops are killers. In 2015, approximately one and 669 American police officers killed someone while on duty. Labeling cops as killers is the textbook definition of fake news. Second, at 13.2% of the population, African Americans are overrepresented among those killed by cops, 26.2%. Particularly among unarmed victims, 40.9% according to data from my study. Yet that alone doesn't necessarily prove widespread racism. In 2018, at least 39% of all murderers were black, according to data from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Some 95% of those killed by police are male. Yet few view this as proof of sexism. On the other hand, only recently have we started to track police killings more closely. A legacy of past violence committed by police, along with disproportionate traffic stops and minority, leads many African Americans to distrust police. Moreover, the cops who kill without cause are likely to get away with it. Mr. Zimring's book estimates that only roughly 1 in 200 police officers who kills a civilian is indicted, with about 1 in 1,000 convicted of a felony. But improvement is possible. Take our paper standout example of New York. The New York Police Department's 38,000 officers kill about 10 civilians annually, roughly 90% less than in 1971, and far fewer than police generally. The New York Police Department's success keeping crime low without killing reflects hard work recruiting and training officers and holding precinct commanders accountable for professionalism. If the goal is to save black lives rather than merely signaling virtue, then we need to find ways to replicate successful police practices.
but few professors are bothering to do the research. Mr. Morano holds a chair at the University of Arkansas's Department of Education Reform. So that was very interesting. So that takes up my time for this half hour. I hope you enjoyed the articles that I selected for you this week. So just grab something to drink and grab something to munch on. I'll be right back with the second half hour of the Wall Street Journal. This is Bill Feltham, so hold on and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill Feltham coming to you with part two of the Wall Street Journal. They're the second half hour and here we go. Are social workers the answer? Not if the goal of abolishing the police is to stop the authorities from harassing people for minor missteps. By Naomi Schaefer Riley, June 8, 2020. Abolish the police, protesters chant. What does that mean? One widely tweeted answer, almost every role in our community a police officer fills would be better handled by a social worker. Yet consider an area in which social workers already tend to be the ones who enforce the law. Child protection agencies routinely send social workers to respond to reports of abuse or neglect. These workers have little or no training in investigation. Their studies include a lot of information about racial sensitivity and cultural competency. And they may be qualified to de-escalate a dispute, but they aren't trained to ask the questions that might reveal if a child is at continuing risk. Often, they will question a child while the alleged abuser is present. Nor are social workers trained to protect themselves in dangerous situations. The Chicago Tribune found that between 2013 and 2017, at least a dozen employees of the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services workers were seriously threatened or attacked on the job. Some departments avoid problems by sending workers out in pairs. One former agency head told me she let her workers carry mace. That's counterproductive if the point of replacing police with social workers is to avoid the use of force. Social workers have a high turnover rate, about 30% a year nationwide and as high as 65% in some agencies, according to a report by Casey Family Programs. That means the workforce tends to be young and inexperienced. For those workers who remain on the job, Penn State sociologist Sarah Font writes, burnout manifests in the workplace as work avoidance apathy towards the well-being of clients, and feelings of cynicism and futility. And racial disparities are an issue in child welfare as with police. Agencies are often accused of racism because social workers remove a disproportionate number of minority children from their homes. There are reasons for these disparities besides racism, like a larger percentage of black homes with unrelated men, but social workers are no more likely than police to, to address this issue. In a practice activist, in practice, activists called Jane Crow, social workers subject black mothers to low-level surveillance. Some call it harassment. Social workers aren't subject to some of the checks that police officers are when it comes to getting involved with the lives of the, these poor and minority families. They aren't taught about the right of the accused and the rules of evidence. As lawyer Diane Redleaf chronicles in her book, in her 2018 book, they took the kids last night. In some cases, social workers will continue to monitor parents or keep their children away even when police think, think no evidence supports a claim of abuse. Ms. Redleaf documents how social workers sometimes keep parents in an extra-legal limbo, requiring them to take parenting classes or jump through other hoops, and then threaten to take legal action if they don't. 
If the activists in the streets and their leaders are interested in getting the authorities to stop harassing people for minor missteps, turning things over to social workers wouldn't seem to be the recipe for success. And if you know anybody who's been involved with CPS, they would be the ones to talk to about social workers. All right. And the next article is COVID, DNA, and blood types. Studies are finding that those with O blood are less susceptible. Millions of Americans have taken personal DNA tests from companies like 23andMe to find out whether their genes put them at higher risk for disease like breast and colon cancer. Now these tests are identifying people who are more likely to get sick from COVID-19 or the Wuhan flu. That's my input. 23andMe on Monday published a potentially significant finding that people with the blood type O were on average 14% less likely than other blood types, A, B, A, B, to get COVID and 19% less likely to be hospitalized after accounting for age, sex, comorbidities, ethnicity, and body mass. Uh, Among exposed individuals, O blood types were 19% less likely to test positive. There appears to be little difference in susceptibility among other blood types. Their preliminary findings comes from 23andMe's analysis of 750,000 people who agreed to let their DNA be used for COVID research. Participants were also asked whether they've experienced cold or flu-like symptoms, been diagnosed or treated for COVID, and hospitalized for the illness. 23andMe notes its findings is supported by a new pre-publication study comparing 8,582,968 gene variations from 1,610 patients in Spain and Italy who needed oxygen or mechanical ventilation. Variations at only two chromosomes located showed a significant correlation with COVID severity. severity excuse me. One encoded blood type, A positive, had a 45% higher risk of respiratory failure, while O's had a 35% lower risk. Studies have previously found links between blood types and infectious and chronic disease. For instance, O's appear to have lower risk for cardiovascular disease and heart attacks. The blood type gene is located in a stretch of DNA that regulates inflammation and blood clotting, which plays a significant role in COVID-19. The authors of the European study note that variations of the chromosome's location for blood type has been associated with blood clotting factors and interleukin-6, an inflammatory protein involved in uh, cytokine storms that attack the respiratory system. 23andMe is sending free kits to 10,000 severely ill COVID patients in hope of identifying more significant genetic links. These findings could help guide treatment decisions and provide another lead for scientists trying to crack the COVID-19 mystery. Well, there you go. That was interesting. All right. On to some technology here. June 10th, coming out of Simi Valley, Tesla shares soar past $1,000 on Elon Musk's plan to move forward with the semi-truck. Silicon Valley electric car maker is in a race with rival upstart Nikola, N-I-K-O-L-A, by Tim Higgins. Tesla Incorporated investors pushed the automaker's stock to more than $1,000 a share Wednesday 
lifting its valuation closer to Toyota Motors Corporation after Chief Executive Elon Musk told employees it was time to begin volume production of the company's long-promised all-electric semi-trailer truck. Mr. Musk said in a memo to employees late Tuesday night, it was time to bring out the all-electric Tesla semi-truck without saying where it was where it would be assembled or when battery production for the truck he wrote would occur at the company's battery factory outside of Reno, Nevada. Tesla didn't respond to her request for comment. The pronouncement came after Wall Street in recent days sent shares of rival startup Nikola Corporation rising to about three times the price since trading began last week, giving the Phoenix-based electric truck company a market value greater than Fiat Chrysler Automotive Nevada, despite having never sold a vehicle. It briefly, it's, it briefly this week surpassed Ford Motor Company by value two before falling more than 18% Wednesday. The overall investor enthusiasm is part of a broader excitement for electric vehicles and a belief that the future of ground transportation may be powered with batteries and not gasoline, even though customers haven't yet flocked to the technology. That excitement has helped more than double the Palo Alto, California company's stock price this year, despite concerns over the global coronavirus pandemic and fears of an extended recession that might dampen demand for new vehicles. Its share closed at $1,025.05, rising 9% on the day. Given the company's market value of more than $190 billion, that puts the Tesla valuation near nearer that of Toyota, which at $216 billion has long been the world's largest automaker by market value. The pandemic, before the pandemic hit this year, this year was seen by many analysts and investors as the moment Tesla would finally capitalize on years of investment in factories and new products and vision as part of Mr. Musk's vision of making electric vehicles mainstream. A new factory in China, which started car deliveries last late last year and the arrival of the latest product, the Model Y Compact Sport Utility Vehicle, was expected to help Tesla achieve its first annual profit as Mr. Musk predicted increasing delivery globally more than 36% to over 500,000 vehicles. Those delivery targets are now in question after local government's efforts to stop the spread of the coronavirus shut down Tesla's lone U.S. assembly factory starting in late March. It reopened last month and workers are racing to make up for lost time. In a separate separate memo over the weekend, Mr. Musk told workers that ramping production of the Model Y was the company's top priority. Despite the turbulent, Wall Street still expects a full-year profit for Tesla. The, the reveal of the semi, along with a new version of the Roadster Sport Car in the late 2017, helped reignite excitement in the company when Mr. Musk and his team were struggling to build the company's Model 3 compact car. The company at the time said the semi-truck which is designed to go 500 miles on a single charge, would come out in 2019. That didn't happen. In January, Tesla said the semi would begin delivery in 2021. Mr. Musk told analysts that part of the reason Tesla had delayed the truck's production was to avoid cannibalizing battery supply for the Model 3 and the Model Y. Mr. Musk's latest memo was earlier reported by Reuters. Mr. Musk has promised to boost battery availability. This is very fundamental and extremely difficult, Mr. Musk said in January, excuse me, promising to later detail plans for the company's battery strategy. The announcement of those plans is expected sometime this month. Mr. Musk also is looking to set up a second assembly facility in the U.S., in part for the company's coming electric pickup 
the Cybertruck. Revel Nicola recently surprised investors, inspect, excuse me, investors by saying it was pulling forward plans for a pickup truck and would begin taking orders on June 29th. It's previously said the pickup, which will be powered by both an electric battery and hydrogen fuel cells, wasn't a priority. Nicola has said it plans to begin deliveries of its first electric semi-trailer truck in 2021. In a sign of a possible step-up competition to come, Nicola Chief Executive Trevor Milton took to Twitter on Wednesday writing, I love the competition. Tesla's call to mass-produce a semi is a good thing to Nicola's business model no matter what. So there you go. It's an electric semi-truck war between Tesla and Nikola. So here you go. This is what we need in the United States. Production competition. That's good for America. That's good. And we're talking about production and craziness. Here's some craziness for you. Everybody was so excited about drones and what drones could do and how wonderful drones were. Well, they're not anymore. Here we go. <laughs> Politics. Drone surveillance of protests come under fire. Democrat lawmakers and some conservatives call for a halt in monitoring peaceful demonstrations against police brutality. <laughs> uh, peaceful protests. Yeah, right. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Out of Washington. This is the state of Washington. The governor's use of cutting-edge surveillance to monitor protests is coming under scrutiny by lawmakers and activists, including conservatives who see it as a threat to constitutional rights amid a, nation, a national rethinking of the role of police. The issue came to the fore after a Predator drone operated by U.S. Customs and Border Protection was observed flying over protests in Minneapolis on May 29th in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in police custody. There. Drone flights have also been reported over San Antonio and Detroit, according to a letter Tuesday from about three dozen House members. The letter, which called for a halt to surveillance of peaceful protests, also cites reports of surveillance flights by other agencies using conventional aircraft over Washington, D.C. Americans have a healthy fear of government surveillance that started at the founding of our country and has continued to modern times, said the letter signed by lawmakers including Representative Anna Eshoo, Democrat California, and Bobby Rush, Democrat Illinois. While the congressional scrutiny so far is coming from Democrats, some conservatives are troubled as well. It's disturbing to see tools built to gather military intelligence being used to watch U U.S. citizens, says Billy Easley II, a senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, a conservative organization. Drones should not be used by the government to monitor or collect data on First Amendment activity, he says. They should only be used when there is a threat to life or property, and the federal government should be transparent about the circumstances of their use. Oh my goodness, cities are burning down. I think that's life or property. But either way, continuing on, CBP confirmed that the agency flew a predator over Minneapolis but disputed the claim in the congressional letter that the drones were flown over Detroit and San Antonio. The Minneapolis drone flight was first reported by the Project on Government Oversight, a nonpartisan research group. CBP also used helicopters and planes to monitor protests, an agency spokesman said. He said the video captured is shared with local law enforcement to determine the size and movement of protests, and no, no attempt is made to identify individual protesters. A second CBP official said the images provide situational awareness, he added. If you're law enforcement, it'd be helpful to know if it's 20 people or 2,000. In the latter Tuesday, lawmakers also cited 
reports that other government agencies, including the FBI and the Air National Guard, are involved in protest surveillance. In a statement, the FBI said it respects the right of Americans to peacefully protest and said its efforts are focused on identifying, investigating, and disrupting individuals that are inciting violence and engaging in criminal activity. The Air National Guard didn't respond to a request for comment. Federal officials, including Attorney General William Barr, have said their efforts during the protests have been focused on apprehending and charging what he called violent radical agitators. Mr. Barr has said violence by extremist groups during the protests amount to domestic terrorists. The surveillance has alarmed those who worry that federal, state, and local agencies can be deployed an array of sophisticated tactics and techniques, including high-zoom surveillance cameras, facial recognition software, cell phone monitoring devices, and social media tracking techniques to monitor civilian engaged in a peaceful demonstration. No government agency should be facilitating the over-policing of the black community, period, says ACLU Senior Legislation Council Nima Singh Giuliani in a statement. She added that the CPB's use of military technology to surveil protesters inside the U.S. border is deeply disturbing, especially given CPB's lack of clear and strong policies to protect private and constitutional rights. While technology such as a smartphone has helped document police violence, activities say it also can hamper protesters' effort to bring about change by scaring them away. The surveillance threatens to chill protesters' First Amendment rights, says Saria Hussain, a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a digital rights organization that has focused on high-tech surveillance. Why give law enforcement every single possible tool to use as it fingers, at its fingertips, she said, adding, I think this is a time of reckoning to figure out, do we want these tools to exist? Well, I think it's a little late for that. All righty. All right, we've seen this one. Okay, we read those, we read that. All right, let's read about the cancel culture. Cancel culture journalism. Two liberal editors fall for a violation against the progressive orthodoxy. This is from the editorial board there at the Wall Street Journal, dated June 8th. The purge of senior editors at progressive newspapers this weekend is no cause for cheering. Their resignations are another milestone in the march of identity politics and cancel culture through our liberal institutions and American journalism and democracy will be worse for it. The longtime editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer who'd seen the publication through difficult time, was pushed out over a headline, Buildings Matter Too, unquote. It was atop a piece by architecture critic Inga Saffron, who worried that buildings damaged by violence could leave a gaping hole in the heart of Philadelphia, unquote. Staff members deemed the headline an offense to the Black Lives Matter. They protested. And no amount of apologizing or changes to the headline were enough. Editor San Wisnowski didn't last that week. At the New York Times editor page, editor James Bennett resigned Sunday after a staff uproar over an op-ed by a U.S. senator. Arkansas Republican Tom Cotton wrote that military troops should be sent to restore public order in American cities when the police are overwhelmed, a staff revolt deemed the the peace deemed the peace fascist, unconstitutional, and too offensive for adults to read and decide for themselves. 
Our editor last week opposed deploying active duty troops, but the idea is legal under the Insurrection Act. George H.W. Bush deployed troops in 1992 to quell the riots in Los Angeles after the Rodney King verdict and other presidents had done too. Mr. Bennett defended the op-ed on Friday as part of the of his attempt to broaden debate in the pages, and at first so did publisher A.G. Schultzberger. But Mr. Schultzberger changed his mind the same day, suddenly declaring that the op-ed he had defunded had received proper editing and should not have been published. By Sunday, Mr. Bennett, a true blue, a progressive as you can find, was out the door. James Dow, the opinion editor who had signed off on Cotton's op-ed, was resigned, uh, reassigned, excuse me. As ostensibly independent opinion sections was ransacked because the social justice warriors in the newsroom opposed a single article exposing a view that polls show tens of millions of Americans supported the police can't handle rioting and violence. The publisher failed to back up his editors, which means the editor no longer runs the place. The struggles, sessions on Twitter and Slack channel rules. All of this shows the extent to which American journalism is now dominated by the same moral denunciation, safe space demands, and identity politics dogmas that began in the uh, university, the agents of this politics now dominates nearly all of America's leading cultural institutions, museums, philanthropy, Hollywood, book publishers, even late-night talk shows. On matters deemed sacrosanct, and today that includes the view that Americans is root, brand, and racist, there is no room for debate. You must admit that your failure to appreciate this orthodoxy and do penance or you will not survive in your job. Some of our friends on the right are pleased because they say all of this merely exposes what has long been true. But this takeover the times and other liberal medium bastions make that there are fewer institutions that will defend the free iniquity and the content of ideas that once defined Americans' institutions. So there you go. That's a lot going on. Cancer culture journalism. It's going to kill this country. So if the, if the mob doesn't like what you're doing and they don't like what you're saying, they're going to get rid of you. And that's all that matters. If they don't like you, you're out. And the last uh, article, NASCAR to allow protests during National Anthem. NASCAR will no longer require its teams to stand during the National Anthem. Instead, drivers and team members will be allowed to engage in peaceful protests. According to NBC Sports, Dustin Long, NASCAR eliminated the guidelines before last weekend's race at Atlanta Motor Speedway. NASCAR official Kirk Price knelt during the invocation and raised a fist. Peace Price, who served as a, a, who served on active duty in the U.S. Army for three years, remained kneeling during the the anthem while he saluted the flag. Bubba Wallace, the sport's only full-time black driver, called Price's protest a powerful move. If I would have seen it, I would have went there and stood next to him, kneeling next to him because it's such a powerful move. Wallace told CNN, a man, an incredible man, who has served our country kneeling down. People think it's disrespecting the flag and going against our military, and it definitely not. I would so uneducated what the kneeling meant when I started, but now reading about, about it and what it stands for, and I am so doing it a lot of learning myself. Don't get me wrong, I don't know what everything is about. Uh, let's see, what's it about? 
I don't know everything about what's going on in the world, but that's what I'm, we are trying to deliver the message. Listen and learn to be able to better educate ourselves. So there we go. Wallace is set to race Wednesday night in a number 43 car doing, adored with the hashtag Black Lives Matter paint theme. So there you go. Black uh, the NASCAR has uh, bought into the Black Lives Matter, uh, and Bubba Watson here has his uh, USA mask on, uh, falling into the hoax of the coronavirus, and has a shirt on. I can't breathe. Black Lives Matter, and I read you the article earlier that the I can't breathe stuff is uh, a hoax uh, uh, out of uh, St. Louis. But unfortunately, the guy up in St. Louis, Floyd, really couldn't breathe and it killed him. But either way, this is what's going on with the articles today. I hope you enjoyed them. And until next week, this is Bill Feltham. God bless you and God bless your week. In Jesus' name, amen.